I think you can never ask too many questions. You can never bug too many people. It's, it's only going to benefit you. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 127. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun because I enjoyed this. It was way different than some of the other guests because of the approach that my guest Colin Eggstrom had on his acquisition and the growth and sale of his company. Colin literally bought his commercial cleaning company for $5,000 off of Craigslist. And then over the course of the next three and a half years, Colin grew that from pretty much zero employees. I think that he said that the previous owners were making like 50 grand and he called up all the clients and then he started to hire people and get accounts. They were one of the first people in Bozeman, Montana that had a commercial cleaning website. So he was getting leads come in and he grew it up to 43 employees up to close to $650,000 in revenue and then ended up selling it for a variety of reasons, which he'll explain on the show. But one of the big things that he wanted to make sure he accomplished was to learn what it was like to sell a business, which I thought was very unique because a lot of people grow their business and they have it for many, many years and decades. And then they have this big event at the last moment when they really need the financial windfall and they want to make sure that their legacy continues where Colin did this with the intention of making sure that he understood what all the nuances were like because he wants to do it again and wants to do it again many times. So there was not as much at stake this time. And he shares all the things that he learned. And regardless of the size of your business, these are things that are super important that you need to start thinking about because there's a lot on the line depending on the size of your business and what your intentions are after the fact. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Colin has a lot of great insights. He's super transparent and super energetic about what people should be learning what he learned and it was just an overall blast to have him on the show so without further ado i really hope you enjoy my interview with colin this episode of life after business is sponsored by gexp collaborative their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success timing and future happiness sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want Morning, Colin. How you doing? Good. How you doing, Ryan? Well, it's New Year's Eve and you're about to go skiing and I'm about to go hang out with my kids. So I think we've got slightly different agendas for the rest of the day, <laughs> but we'll be able to rally back and forth. And we got introduced to a, a friend of you and actually it's something like a, a, a business classmate of yours, Ken, who I met at uh, the Rhodium Weekend with Chris Yates, which is a great community of online entrepreneurs. But you know, when uh, we got the introduction, I was like, oh my gosh, well, you sold the business and you're trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm like, well, this is perfect opportunity. Let's just capture it on the show. Um, so for the the people that aren't familiar with you or your background, like what, so how did you get into becoming an entrepreneur? Was it something in school? I know Ken's got a little bit of the entrepreneur bug as well. So what's uh, what's the backdrop and how did you guys get to know each other? Um, yeah, so I met Ken both through there was an entrepreneurship club in school that I was a member of. And then we also, he skis as well. Um, so I think he'll be out here in February, but nice. we kind of were friends on both aspects of that. But, and I've kind of always had an interest in doing stuff myself, but I never knew, you know, what I was going to do. I Did went to school. Fam- family or friends that, that were entrepreneurs? Um, my grandfather had a pretty big um, HVAC company growing up hmm. um, that kind of through shitty people and legal things kind of dissolved and now reformed. But, um, and then both my parents have 
more regular job. My dad's an engineer. My brother and sister are engineers. Um, my mom kind of worked while we were in school, but um, kind of more on the side. Nice. So, the, so then, did you guys did you go to school? Like, did was it like I'm going to be an entrepreneur, or did, was there like some random opportunity that popped up in front of you? Or? So yeah, I went to school. I studied finance. I did well. I graduated honors. I could have had a job in the city. I did internships every year, and I was like, I don't want to go work in some whatever job. So I uh, was like, whatever, I'll ski for a year. So me and my girlfriend moved out here um, to Bozeman right after I graduated, worked the summer, just waiting tables, and then moved out here to ski for a year. I waited tables out here for about a year. And my first winter here, I skied like 92 days. And at the time, I ice climbed a lot. I probably ice climbed like 30-something days, too. I mean, I was outside six, seven days a week. That's awesome. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. How many skiable days are there? So like, you got 92 days in. I think lifts turn about 130, 120, 130. Yeah, that's pretty good then. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and then, so yeah, so I worked out here, I was waiting tables, and I'm a friendly person. I talk to everyone. Like, my question is, like, when I'm waiting tables, I'll always ask, like, what do they do? What are, like, what's going on in town? Like, how do you, like, how do you make things work here? Because, I mean, when I moved here, a three-bedroom, two-bath house was 1200 bucks a month. You know, like, cool, if I get roommates, I basically live for free. Like, my student right. loans are more than my rent by double. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, since then, those have kind of been blowing up and rent's a little more than that now. But um, it's like, how do you, no one can make any real money here. I mean, you can go get a job at a bank and make like $35,000 being a loan officer. It's like, this is shit. I was making the same amount of money waiting tables four days a week at night. So it's like, <laughs> I, um, and so everyone's like, everyone seems to work for themselves out here, which I think is awesome, you know, and it's, from being out here, I don't want to like be rude to anyone, but people on the East Coast are a little faster and a little like more aggressive. People here are just kind of slow and lazy. <laughs> Everyone just recreates. And it's like, I'll go ski hard in the morning and then I'll get up and then I'll come back and I'll go to work and I'll work hard and I'll work late. And it's like, people recreate and then fuck off for the rest of the day. And it's like, what do they call powder days? So no, what is it that no one has any friends when there's uh, fresh powder? <laughs> Yeah, and it's unbelievable. So, like, you'll be up here, you'll go up to Bridger before it's open. Like, it'll be a Tuesday, and maybe it snowed a foot or six inch or something. And it's like a Tuesday, and the mountain's not even open. So, you have to hike up the mountain, and the parking lot's full. <laughs> and you're like, does anyone work? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, it, it, I'm assuming you met like a crazy amount of people when you were waiting tables. So, like, how did. Where did it get to the point where you're like, okay, well, maybe I should jump into business for myself, or did you end up purchasing the business? What was the? What was so, the and I look around at stuff all the time, and actually, there was a like I look on Biz by Sell and Craigslist, and like I wake up in the morning and I just troll the internet of things that I'm looking for. So it was a while. I think it was spring of fourteen. I think it was fourteen. I saw there was a I reached out to a broker who was posted a cleaning company for sale. I'd never even thought about it commercial cleaning as a business, you know, and it's like, oh, I guess everyone needs that. And they were, you know, there's a difference in my mind. I'm sure you agree with between having a job and profit. And it was like, people are like categorizing. Yeah. It's like, if you're doing all the work and you're working 80 hours a week, that isn't profit. You just have a decent paying job. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like the value wasn't even close to what the value was. So I'm curious, Colin, because before you, you elaborate on that is how did you 
get into that mindset, right? I mean, so for being fairly young and then also like, how did you determine that you were like, you know, trolling the internet for job, for companies? Like, so what were the, some of the, like the building blocks that got you into that mindset, even understanding what you just said? Um, and I don't really know. I mean, I like, I'd always like do side stuff when I was younger just to make money. Like I cut lawns or I, you know, I know there's, that's just, I guess that's just kind of how I'm wired. Like, I don't think it's necessarily like I didn't learn that in school or in anywhere. I think it's just kind of like what I've. None of your finance classes were talking about, you know, like the difference between wages and like actual profit and what a company is valued at or anything. No. And I mean, looking back to like, I didn't really read much about business. I didn't like listen to podcasts. I was just like, I knew I could make money doing something else. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's That's not. Awesome. So, the, so like, what was it like when you're when you're going through and you're looking? You probably it's kind of like when you're looking at houses where you're as you're shopping around, you're starting to learn the market of what's going on, what different things are priced at, and stuff like that. Like, how did you get to the point where you're like, okay, you know, so if you're making you know thirty, forty grand or fifty grand doing it as a teller, I'm assuming any of these higher paying jobs, you know, you're you're. How did you get to the point where you're like, okay, this is what a company is worth, and this is its salary? I mean, like. Well, so you're going to laugh. The company I bought, I paid $5,500 for it. Shit, what? <laughs> so, I, um, so I looked into that company that I was looking at and they were just asking an absorbent amount for something that, you know, they had few customers and whatever. But, um, and then months later, I saw a post on Craigslist for something that sounded to me exactly the same as what I talked with a broker. And I thought now they're sitting in a broker and they're over it and they're selling it for cheaper. But it was a totally different company. So it was a couple um, who are now married, super nice people. They had like one employee at the time, maybe like a, maybe it was two. They had one or two employees and it kind of varied. And they, um, basically he was an engineer, got laid off and she was in grad school and they kind of did it as a means to an end. Like they were just paying their bills because mm -hmm. the economy had gone down before. And then basically he got offered a job and she finished school and didn't want to do it anymore. He hated it the whole time. You know, he despised <laughs> everything about it. But they did everything right. They had an accountant. They used QuickBooks. They had contracts. They did everything right. And they did a good job. But they um, basically, they told all their customers they're closing down. And then they posted it for sale on Craigslist the next day. How does that, yeah. How does that work? <laughs> it makes no sense. It's like, do you not want any value out of this? So then basically, I, my offer to him was like, either I can pay you a set amount now and then we can go and get these customers back and I'll pay you a percent. Like I'll basically pay you a amount for a customer we get back. Yeah, like and I would have paid him three times as much and he wanted nothing to do with it. And I was like, well, I'll write you a check for five grand. You can like go away. Hmm. And that's what he wanted. So I think we settled on 5,500 instead of five grand. So did they, I mean, <laughs> that's ridiculous. So what was the top line revenue that they were making as a couple? So I think that year, like if you did a like trailing 12, they would have done like $85,000 in sales. Really? So I, don't, I couldn't tell you what they made because they did a lot of the cleaning. They had an employee. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I mean, they were probably making 50 grand together. Um, mm -hmm. Something like that. And, and, and then, so our first month I did like $3,400 in sales. So okay. I went back and I knocked on every door, every client and everyone, basically everyone who didn't already have a contract stayed on. Okay. Uh, but there wasn't much. Yep. So, so and that was, so that was in 2014. So what was your, like when you did that, what was your, what was the mindset? Like, was it, I'm going to build this. Did you have like any kind of goals from top line from profit? Like what was your mindset going into that? What was the ultimate goal? 
So I guess I didn't have too much like goals and thoughts until I left my job waiting tables. So this was, I closed September 15th and then I hired, I had a friend who cleaned at the Yellowstone club and he hated it. So I was like, Hey, I'll hire you to do this. I'll pay you more money. And then your job is in town. It's flexible. So I hired him and then I helped do a lot of stuff. But basically it was, I had two, almost basically two employees in the beginning who did everything. And then I still waited tables because I still had to pay my bills. Because I mean, as you know, just because we do the work doesn't mean I got paid yet. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and for the time, five grand was all I really had. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Um, so I basically, and then I just want, my mindset was just to grow. Like I just want, I don't care. I got, we were always cheaper and I just wanted to get all the work. And I figured if we can get to be big enough, then I can start making money and then I can figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get as much business as possible. I just, we grew fast. I mean, I did that. It was that first year. It was that first, whatever, three months. And then the next year we did like 175,000 in sales. Good for um, you, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And right around the new year, of four, right around when 14 ended, I quit my job waiting tables. I had bids out for two contracts that were worth more than what I made waiting tables. And I was like, well, forget it. I got to figure this out. <laughs> that's, that's so awesome. So what were, what were some of the other milestones? So you get 175 the second year, and then what was some of the other growth milestones? And then at what point, so you had their growth in the revenue, but then also in the profit where you like, did you hire additional people and were you trying to lock in contracts? What were some of the kind of the. Yeah. So basically, so I had the first three months and then I, um, I quit my job and now this is what I was doing. And I was living off like a thousand dollars a month. Like I was paying my student loans, my rent, and that was kind of all I had. Cause, and then all the money went back because every time we get, the way we structured it is every time you get a new contract and it's not a much of equipment, but you buy a vacuum, you buy supplies and that all stays in the building. And then, so every time I start an account, I'm basically, it's not much, but it's probably 700 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're growing fast, I mean, we probably took on, I don't know, 40 accounts mm-hmm. in the first year and a half. There's a lot of stuff. Right. And you're just kind of pouring that all back in. And then I kind of, at one point I realized, I just put in a con- it was a bigger contract that I got and I just put in there that we get paid, we, we pre-bill. So we start on the first and you get a bill for me mm-hmm. and no one said a word. And from then on out, we just pre-billed everyone. And it was like, <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Like all you gotta do is ask, right? Yeah. It's like, we have terms, like my supplier, I have 30 day terms and then I put it on a credit card at the end of the month. So I have 60 day terms. And I'm getting paid in 30 days. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this is awesome. So when you start a new account, it doesn't cost me a penny. Mm-hmm. I get paid before and pretty much the profit from the first month paid for the stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like, now I'm cash positive. I can grow as fast as I want. So how did you, what was some of the things that you did? And now that, uh, now that you're doing that, you got cash in the bank and able to fund stuff. And it wasn't, I mean, I didn't really, I guess it didn't change too much, but it just stopped stressing me out. So now we could grow more. So that first year we did 175 and the next year I think we did 350. Good for you. And then I was running around with my hair on fire and I was like, this sucks. Like I, was, <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I was like, I was underwater and we were just like, cause I, I think around then I finally got an office maybe like end of the first, maybe after the first year, year and a half, I got an office. So I was like interviewing people in coffee shops and like people don't show up and it's just a waste of time. And you're like wasting your whole day. Like, Sticking around trying to figure out what you're going to do. And then I got an office for super cheap. And then I think that made a big difference. And then now we're like a little more professional. Mm-hmm. I think it helped with hiring because people don't want to meet at a coffee shop. 
you know, like, what is this company? <laughs> yeah, well, it's made on the ski, on the ski hill, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, go ahead. Oh, and then right around the end of that second year, I hired who then became my GM for three years. Or maybe okay. it was the end of the first year. Yeah, end of my first year. So he was at the company for three years uh, when I sold. And so he basically, he helped me fix everything. He was awesome. He was just, he works harder than anyone I know. And Where, Where'd you find him? So he got a job, like most of our employees are part-time. So he got a job for us working to save up to go to Thailand for a month. So he was working at Target and then he got a job here just to save extra money. Like a lot of our staff, a lot of them are like, it's second job. So we get a much higher caliber applicant mm-hmm. who wants to work like two extra hours a night, two to three. Um, and that's kind of how I directed all my ads is you want that person like who works really hard, who maybe has kids, who's like, maybe got hurt and needs to pay off some medical debt or, you know, what shit happens. Mm-hmm. So it's like those people are a lot better caliber applicant than someone who like wants to come clean full time. Mm-hmm. It's an exhausting job. And frankly, you could make more money full time somewhere else. Interesting. So we so kind of got how many employees stay around as long, but they worked really hard the whole time they were here. That's awesome. And you so kind of know that when you hire them. How many employees did you have when you sold? I think we had 43. 43. Wow. All part-time? Yep. Uh, minus like managers and stuff like that. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. So um, how about the other top? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing some of the, the um, top line and bottom line numbers before you end up selling or. Oh yeah, no, I don't care at all. So I, um, so then we did, so I guess I did 350 and then basically I cut a bunch of stuff back and then the next year and we just kind of made everything organized. So all of our stuff like got way better. We had, I finally set up an inspection software that I wanted to tablet programs. We have mm-hmm. every floor of every building broken down by everything we do. So it's like, you'll know this is second floor office 2F and then the inspector can click on the thing and say like, okay the table wasn't wiped down, the floor needs to be back, and you can take pictures. And then it's corresponding to the map of the building. And of oh my gosh, super cool. So everything was like, everything got way better organized just because I had another time to do it. I had, I was paying for this off for the whole time, but I never set it up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then we kind of cut back. We, every time we'd take on a big account, I'd get rid of some small ones. Because there's, it's so hard to train someone on like, you know, there's all these little offices that are like, you know, 3,000 square feet and maybe have, eight people mm-hmm. and they want you to do it once a week and once a week sucks. So it's like, cause then you get to train someone on five to 10 buildings, depending on how big they are, you know, versus right. if you plan a bank, you train them on one bank mm-hmm. and you can train them three nights and you're done. And then how it just goes to quality control. How are you finding the accounts? Um, so this is the best part. When I bought the company, we were the only company with a website. <laughs> That's a good differentiator, right? <laughs> there yeah, you go. So like, <laughs> so in the website, I mean, it worked fine. To my opinion, it wasn't very good. The old owner made it and I just left it. So we were always first in Google. So and it's one of those things, everyone's on contracts. And everyone else's contract has a 30-day opt-out, which we didn't have. Ours were just auto-renewing one year. So like, because in the beginning, they were just one years and then... No one cares about the janitor. They're just like, you're the ghost. You show up, you do your job, you go home. Mm-hmm. It was like, you do a good job, you never hear from them. Like, I'd have clients I wouldn't talk to for the whole year. And I mean, they love us. We do a great job. They know they've had shitty companies. They know we do a good job, and, but they don't want to talk to you. you know? <laughs> right. Your customer service department is not as big as some other companies. Yeah. So it's just like, so then it would come time to renew and I feel annoying just asking them, hey, like bugging them over and over again, you sign this contract. It's not they're not happy. They're just like, 
They're like, yeah, whatever. Just keep cleaning the building. We'll keep paying you. So then we just started making them all auto-renewing, and they didn't have opt-outs. And I didn't have any issues with that either. Everyone was fine with it. And I just did it out of convenience. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas every other company in town has 30-day opt-outs. So if they're doing a bad job, they can get fired. Did you know it, with hindsight, or maybe did you have foresight, or is it where hindsight of realizing that that was value creating in the business too? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, my mind, so I guess your question before too is like, what was your goals? Like my, my opinion was I want to get this company to a million dollars in sales. And then I was either going to be done with it or I was going to diversify and go, okay, let's start a landscaping company. Let's start this. Cause like if I can get, you know, if I got 20% of the clients to say, let's do landscaping with you guys, mm -hmm. then that's a $200,000 business. Like that's worth starting. Mm -hmm. um, and then I could hire someone to run it. And I was, we never got to that point, but that was kind of, that was my goal the whole time. And then I just, so basically, so I did everything to set it up for that. So I'd always have my auto-renewing contracts. I'd always try to make things more long-term because mm -hmm. then it is able to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and then we did, so last year we did like 460 in sales and then we sold this year. So I think the company should do about 675 this year. I saw my books anymore. It was just, I was hoping to do 700. But I kind of got lazy. We posted it for sale in the spring and I kind of stopped taking on business because I wanted an easy transition. So we would have done seven, seven fifty had I still been doing it. Wow, that's that's awesome. So and did you actually have so yeah, was Google your main source of leads or at ninety-five percent of our leads, people just called me. Like they'd literally <laughs> call my phone or they'd fill out if it was an engineering company or any kind of like tech thing, they'd fill out the form online. And if it was any other company, they'd call my phone. Wow, that's awesome. It was unbelievable. So, I mean, we got, and we're first in, we were first in Google the whole time. We still are. So it's like, and it didn't take any extra money or whatever. It was, mm -hmm. it was free. And it's like, there's so much value in those leads. Cause then, I mean, we cherry picked them. So like stuff would come in that we wouldn't want. And I would just refer it to someone who I knew who had a smaller business who wanted the leads. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, I don't have to say no. I would just send them to them. I'd cease them an email and say, Hey, we're not taking on accounts of this nature. Um, please like, like, please talk to these people. And then I would just email connect them and the client's happy and we're happy and they're happy. So and did then, you, you know, you had mentioned that there's so much value in those leads and you were talked about like the diversification with landscaping and like why, so I'm curious on what got you to the point that you're going to sell and why, and then versus taking those leads of all those, and how many customers did you have? Cause I mean, like you, you could sell more stuff to those same customers who are already working with you. Totally. And so the funny thing is when we went to sell, I think we had around 60 customers. And by the time I closed in the sale, I cut it back down to 40. The revenue was actually higher, but I started just getting rid of small ones. Cause I wanted, I wanted to make it so the person taking it over has the easiest time ever running a company. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I, at this point I was already like the company kind of started to run itself and it's the small stuff that's annoying. Like I don't want to train the new owner on like all these dinky little accounts that don't like don't create value. Mm -hmm. So we would just, we, every time we get a big one, I get rid of a couple of small ones. Or it was like every time the employee, we put good employees on the small ones because they were kind of a hassle. So whenever that person would like something, they'd move or something happened, we would kind of just stop doing a lot. We'd reassess them. Mm -hmm. So we'd leave them the way they are until something happens and then we'd reassess them. Um, so when we sold, we had 40 instead of 60. Wow. Like the revenue still went up. Mm -hmm. I, I would, what was why did you sell? I mean, what was the reason? What was the triggering point that said, you know what, it's time instead of the million bucks? Yeah. So I was just bored. Like, <laughs> I mean, I do the same thing every day. I hire the same kind of people to do the same kind of jobs. 
and I, I love all our employees. Like our business is our employees, you know, like there's nothing else. I mean, yeah, you have contracts, but like the business is the employees and it took those years to find those people. I mean, that's your hassle. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go to interview someone, I'll get 15 responses, 10 of them might show up and one or two of them is hireable. <laughs> and if so I spend a third of my time, I mean, I probably spent half my time doing HR, probably a quarter or a third of it hiring. And it's just like, you're like, really? You ever think about just hiring that out though? Or finding what? someone that, you ever think about hiring that out? Because like, I'm just trying to, because there was a gentleman on my podcast recently, and I think there's a lot of interesting dynamics when you're at the, like the revenue and the profit size that you got to, or you, you got enough sustainable income and it's, it's moving into something that's more, that's not just a job. You've got profits that are, and you can hire a $75,000 person that is there. And, and again, you're not going to be potentially making as much profit for you're the owner right now, but you're creating more value. I, I, was there a breaking point there? Or? No, because all of our work was at night. So like everything at night kind of ran itself. Like I had management that was doing that. And it's like, I kind of like having something to do. And I kind of like hiring these people. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't a time thing. And yeah, I, I could have, I thought about hiring someone to do it, but I kind of like it. And it, cause in my mind and everything's different, but the way I look at business too is like, if I give 110% or if I care 110%, my managers might carry a hundred and my employees are going to carry 90. You know, if I take that down to a hundred and then it trickles down from there. So it's like, I kind of like meeting everyone and having them know that I care about them and I care about the quality of work and I'm present. And I think that makes a difference in the business. And I might never see them again after that. Like they'll come in, they'll interview with me they'll have an hour orientation with me where I set them up and go over values and go over what the job entails and put them in the system. I might never talk to them again, but it's like, I really valued that part of the job. Mm-hmm. And I think that made a difference. And like, we do care. Like I did genuinely care about our staff, you know, like someone's car would break, they can borrow a van or it's like, if someone needs something or like, you know, anything we could do to help anyone we would do. And mm-hmm. it was like, I wanted them to know that. And that's how I feel in general about anyone, but it's like, especially staff. No. And I think that's awesome too. And I guess what I'm and that makes sense. And I'm, what I'm trying to figure out Colin is like, so you said you're bored, but you also enjoy doing that. So was it to the point where you couldn't decouple yourself from that and keep the, the business as an investment or was there a, a reason that you still do you kind of understand the part of the question? I'm trying to figure out like what was the... Yeah. So for me, the fun part was figuring it all out and it just stopped being exciting. You know, it was like I do, I hire people for the same jobs, the same stuff and it's repetitive. Yeah, we're really good at it and we do a better job than everyone. And when we sold, we're the biggest company in town. And it was like, I feel like I was just like I already did it. Like I didn't want to be the company that was in five cities. Cause I think that's just going to be a nightmare. So I was kind of like, we are probably, you know, I could have for in two more years, I would have been doing, I bet close to $2 million in sales. And financially I should have kept going and done that. But I was just, I mean, I'm getting bored. I think it showed like I wasn't as excited. I don't get my managers excited. Like it's not, my heart's not in it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of I figured it was better if I just do something else. Cause it's fun learning it and figuring it out. So if I could find a different company to grow and especially when I can grow bigger, you know, like this was going to get to $2 million, I think. And then I was going to kind of start capping out. We'd have to start going other cities. So I was just kind of print. I sold too early in my opinion, but I sold when I wanted to. Well, and, and, and it's interesting because I think you, you articulated it in a really good way where I, I think, I mean, honestly, I'm the same way where like there's so much of what we're doing on a daily basis that has to do with like the internal passion because the passion and the fire makes everything and all the headaches super easy. But when that 
dims and it goes out, you're like, this is the worst. And it's easy to just dump things. And I, I think a lot of people struggle that have been on the show or even entrepreneurs gone. We're like, is there a point, you know, being able to balance that? Like, okay, this, I'm going to get this thing self-sustaining to the point where it's not my baby and it can be an investment. So it was kicking off hundred grand in cash. It's potentially worth, you know, three to 500 grand, but then you're reselling to additional customers or you're using that cash flow to invest in other places. But it's difficult to like separate the emotion and the fire and the drive from the actual financial reasoning behind it. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. Like, I think now I could go and I could own five businesses and they can all, but I'm not as attached to them. You know, they're not like, this was my business. And I think I needed to sell it and then I can do that. Cause I basically, I mean, I had everything I wanted from three years ago. You know, I was making awesome money. I had tons of free time and I could do what I wanted. It snowed. I went skiing, mm-hmm. you know, it was a nice day. I went out in the river and don't get me wrong. I worked my ass off, but it was like, I could do what I wanted. I had everything I wanted. And it was like, now I want something different. Well, and, and I, I think it's interesting too, because when we did like, so just a little bit of context. So my dad, when he started the company, grew it up to all the employees that we had. And then we, we did, it was kind of a turnaround. So I ended up firing and rehiring about 60 out of the hundred people or some, some kind of ratio like that. And so it became my baby where he was all of a sudden detached from it. Right. Where it's like, cause it's my people, my thing, my, like it, it was a kind of a reflection of me. And then after we've sold and going through this, it's like, you kind of have this, distance now where it's like not that big of a deal. It's more of like a system and machinery than it is of like you, an extension of you. So you can make more like objective decisions <laughs> instead of having everything emotion. I don't know if that's, did you, did you kind of experience that kind of evolution throughout the whole process? And even, and part of this too, selling for me is like, I'm going to do this. I imagine the rest of my life. So it's like, I wanted to learn how to sell a business. So I was like, there's even a huge value in that to me of just like, it's something new to learn. Um, but, and I think now that the business sold, I'm done training and a couple of, and I think this is just how stuff goes, but a couple of key staff have left. And I think it was, you know, new people do, like everyone does everything differently. So it's like, they're going to do it their way. They're going to hire their own key employees and the ones that don't fit their vision or what they're doing are just not going to be there anymore. And it sucks, but it's like, now that they're not there, I'm not attached to it anymore. Because now it's their people and now it's their stuff. And it's not, you mm-hmm. know, it's not like I don't feel like, like you said, I'm not so attached. responsible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, feel, I mean, I feel responsible for those people. Like I pay their, I feed their families, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure they're taken care of and everything's right for them. And I, I feel like, I feel stressed for that, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a lot of, like... Well, how did, uh, I saw this guy speak on a panel recently and he worded it. He's like, yeah, I got 50 employees. Everybody's got an average of like four people in their family. So I literally feed 200 mouths every single day. And it's, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's- and, and you want to make their job fun. Like everyone that worked for us, like people who had other jobs, like people who are young and didn't know the difference, just think of it as a job. People who work a lot of places like know the difference and know how awesome it was to work for us. Mm-hmm. And I like that. You know, I think that's awesome. That's how it should be. Like you right. shouldn't have to work for shitty people or shitty companies. It's just yeah. like there's a lot of freedom today to be able to to work where you want, which is why there's more and more value being placed on culture for the companies too. And I don't know, we don't have to digress on that, but it's it it's it is amazing because it's so hard to find people, especially in today's economy. So yeah, you have to you have to make it fun, first of all, because it 
you should, but then also it's, it, it, it's what keeps the company together. To go back kind of when you say you, to, you wanted to learn how to sell a business. So like, like you probably have a handful of things that come right to the top of your mind of like, okay, here's some big takeaways and big, you know, monumental things that I learned. Curious, like wh- where would you start and what, what, what would be some of the top takeaways? So when I'm torn, so I sold it myself. I didn't hire a broker. I look into businesses all the time and 85% of business brokers, I think are morons. And I, <laughs> like, I hate even talking to them. So like the last thing I wanted to do is hire a business broker. But if I did it again, I probably would hire one. Okay. So why? Just cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a fairly aggressive person. Like I just, I ask a bunch, I'm curious and I ask a bunch of questions and I annoy people in a good way, but like, I'm like, kind of quick and annoying. So if I like, and I think that makes stuff come off the wrong way. Like it almost comes off as like, I'm eager to sell and it's not, I'm just like excited to talk to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I met and I like that I sold it because I met a lot of really cool people and like people who are looking at businesses or people who are interesting. And what I, what I lack out here is everyone out here has like, I always have friends to ski with or climb with or bike or raft or whatever I want to do that day. Everyone does that kind of stuff and everyone's into it. But People who like work hard and have something to talk about, there isn't as much of that. So it was like, it was really fun selling because I get to have all these conversations with random people who, you know, obviously succeed in life. If they're buying a business, they've succeeded somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was a lot of fun for me, but I think you need to set yourself apart from it. You can't be the one because you're emotionally attached. And it was like, I think things come off the wrong way. Not that I'm not capable of doing it, but they come off the wrong way. And the buyer actually... Um, the person who ended up buying it actually hired a broker to help facilitate it out of his pocket, obviously for a smaller commission. Mm-hmm. And I liked having him around. Just an intermediary that's able to like take and digest both sides and both people's opinions. And it's good to have someone in the middle because everyone gets attached. So it's like, you're, I mean, you're getting close and we're like fighting over like terms and you're like, I don't know, I'm a very reasonable person and I'm not going to blow something up over something stupid, but a lot of people won't. And it's, it's, it would suck. Like it sucks to ruin a deal. So if what the broker's the not sticking, making money, if it doesn't get done. Right. What were some of the sticking points in the terms? So he based, I have no recourse on, so I financed 50 grand of it and there's no personal guarantee. I'm first in line on the business, but there's no personal guarantee. And that was like a firm point on his, which I get, you know, like you're selling a business, you want training to work. So it's like, if someone screws you over, you can tell them to fuck off on 50 grand. So, and I think that's more of an ego thing than anything, but that's what was in our package. So it's like, I get whatever, a thousand dollars a month for a couple of years. So, so what were the, to maybe go back to, you know, as you're about to list, well, you didn't list it, but you, you did it yourself. And how did you know, and how did you put like, how did you calculate the valuation and then what kind of like scrubbing up of the finances? Did you, was it was like a multiple of EBITDA. Like what was your level of understanding of that? How did you come to the value that you're asking for? Again, I should have kept another year and cleaned up my financials and not like, you know, you own a small business. You don't want to pay tax. So <laughs> obviously you do everything again to not pay taxes. And like with the new tax law coming out, like I prepaid a bunch of shit for the year. So like my numbers weren't good. You know, that's just how I decided after I paid my taxes that I wanted to sell. So it's just, that's how it is. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff I could have done to clean things up and make them look better. And we ended up selling later in the year and the numbers start looking better as the year goes on. But it's like, there's a lot of stuff you could have done to 
fix it ahead of time um, that I didn't do and I wish I did. But a big thing too is I, I changed accountants while I was selling and my accountant, I really like her. I think she's awesome. But like you need someone who's a little more aggressive and you can talk to. And I think that was a big part of it. And basically he was my accountant now is a friend of my attorney and I really like my attorney and they, they work together a lot. So it's like having them like go sit in a room and figure out how to reorganize, how we're going to allocate stuff or change things has a huge impact on my tax burden. So it's like, I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars. It's like, I mean, I probably paid them five grand for facilitating the deal and I probably saved 30 or 40 grand in taxes. It's like a no brainer. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that goes along with a lot of businesses. Like I've always put growth and making things work ahead of like personal gain. And it always, I think it works out just by not being cheap. You end up making more money. If that makes sense at all. No, it does. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's not, you know, I think there's two things. One is that you have to have the right people that have actually are, are familiar with transactions because otherwise it like, it's not like doing your tax or your personal tax returns. Like this no. is way, way, way different. And then you have to have people that collaborate together because the terms, conditions, the financing, the the taxes, all that stuff is all one topic. Yet it's like three or four different expertise that need to 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 handle that situation. Yeah, and just just the fact that they work together on a regular basis is awesome. Because then like they kind of can bounce ideas at each other and say, "Hey, let's do this." And they come. Usually, I'm the one. Like I like being involved and I like knowing everything. I like doing what I can do. And like they did stuff that I wouldn't have figured out, which is awesome. You know, mm-hmm. it's that's why you pay them. So what are some of the other things that you, that you learned and what was the, that you're going to be using to continue doing this before, you know, over and over again? What, was it deal structure? Was it taxes? Was it valuation? Like what was some of the, like the. Well, so what, what kind of bothers me about the whole situation is they just go off like shareholder income or discretion, shareholder discretionary earnings, whatever it is. So it's like you could have, and this, I argued with a bank over this one day. I was like pissed one day. And it was like, cause I was looking at a business that was a property management company and they make like whatever, 150 a year. And they don't have any employees to do the whole damn thing themselves. And I was like, this is not income. This is like, this is not profit. This is like, you know, two thirds, this is a job. Mm-hmm. So like we got to take the job out and then it's profit. And their banks are just like, Nope, it goes by profit. And it's like, this is so stupid. So it's like, I think you can clean things up to make them look better. And I think next time, I'm going to try to like obviously show more profit closer to a sale because it's stupid. It's like the company's only worth a multiple of what profit is and who decides what profit is. And it profits kind of arbitrary. You know, it's like, there's this whole thing too. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called uh, normalizing your EBITDA or like, you know, essentially taking all the ad back. So I would even argue you you could have probably done that with your taxes to show normally like over a period of time, what is that normalized EBITDA? Mm-hmm. And because then, because a lot of people have gone where they like they have the tax man wig, uh, you know, as the, the tail's wig and the dog. Instead of saying, okay, like you, you still got to be doing certain things, so you want to make sure that you're showing profit. You're going to have to pay some tax, but all the different expenses that are not they're just one offs. You can normalize that, and then you apply the multiple. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It was, so when you say that the banks are doing this, is this because it's more coming from like well, so financing or something like that? Or the like first person I worked with couldn't get it done because of financing. And that, that was a mistake on my part. They, they couldn't afford it. 
It was just the way it is. The personal like, balance sheet didn't afford it. What? Their personal balance sheet, like they they, they couldn't yeah. put money down or they something. Just, like that. They weren't even close. It was like, yeah, you guys make good money, but that doesn't mean shit if you can't save any of it. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? I just, I, it blows my mind because I saw their income and I was okay. So whatever, that's like, they make plenty of money to be able to like, you know, if they saved a fraction of it, they're fine. Mm-hmm. They don't save any of it. And it's like their house is 0% down, all their shit, zero, financial their cars, financial their shit. It's like, what are you doing with all this money? I have no idea. So, and that's, it fell apart and it sucks because I wasted a lot of time yeah. and it's one of those, like, I wouldn't accept, I wouldn't be so easy to accept an offer. They gave me a really good offer and that's why I accepted it. But I was like, I was pretty close to a couple of the people to like, they were about to make offers and I just took it. And mm-hmm. that was a mistake in my part. I should have like gone through and said, Hey, I had this offer on the tail. Like tell them, Hey, I'll get back to you in a week, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just taking it. Cause then I wasted a month and a half of my own time. And then by the time you go back to someone, they're not interested, you know, they're excited about it. And then you tell them no. And mm-hmm. now they're not excited about it anymore. Right. Right. Um, so then it costs you time and I probably could have gotten a, and then you wonder, could I have gotten a better offer? Had I just waited a week? Did, um, did you do a stock or an asset sale? It was an asset sale. Any thought behind maybe doing a stock versus an asset or? Um, well, I had no basis in the company, so it didn't really matter to me. So it, to me, it was a nominal difference. Like I would have paid like two grand different taxes just cause I mean, I bought a business for five grand, so it's not, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but I know most time it is asset just cause it's cleaner. Um, but it's ordinary income versus capital gains. But for me, it's, I paid almost all capital gains. The, well, yeah, yeah, because because you're a little base. Well, if you paying if you did if if you bought it for fifty five hundred, you would have, yeah, yeah, you're right because it was a low basis. I mean, it, the only thing I paid tax, the only thing I paid ordinary on was our um, inventory and income, which wasn't much. Got it. So because it was just all the stuff, and I'm assuming you're depreciating all the, <laughs> the stuff yeah. within twelve months or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. So it was all depreciated down. So I think like fifty grand of it, I had to pay ordinary on. Plus like a little bit of inventory, maybe like 60 grand total in ordinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, he put a large amount into uh, non-compete, mm-hmm. which we changed the wording in the contract saying it's just for value purposes. Um, and then we got to take that as, um, yeah. yeah. So that uh, makes- and, and for the listeners, what, what ends up happening too is that a lot of people, would, would the buyer will shove stuff into different, like you were saying, different categories. So that way they're getting the, the their tax benefits. But if you just, like you said, you had all employees and it's a lot of good, it's all goodwill, which is cap gain. So I mean, yeah. that's where I'm assuming your advisors that were, were working on it were rallying to make sure that you had the best outcome. Net. And that's the big thing you fight over. And in my, if I were to do it again too, another thing would be to make sure that the, in the offer or like in the beginning, I want to know where we're allocating things to. Mm-hmm. Cause that, I mean, you can get an offer for 25% more, but if you're paying ordinary income, you're actually losing more money. Yep. 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 So it's like, if you get, so, and that's why like the first buyer I had told me they'll do a stock purchase. And I told them, I don't care. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's not, it's not saying it's a, they thought know, they were being competitive and it didn't matter to you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I really don't care. I'd rather you pay me a little more. Like I was like, it's going to hurt you. Like I'd rather you add five grand of the deal and you guys do an asset purchase and help yourself mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. 
and that's what we were going to do had it worked out, but it didn't work out. So how would like, what was any of the seller or the buyers concerned about employee retention or was there any, like, you know, how did, how did the deal structure and some of their concerns about employee retention, other things or you know, even customer retention impact cash up front or, you know, any kind of earnouts or. There wasn't really much concern with customer retention um, just because they're all in auto renewing and it's yeah. not like, I mean, they all know me personally and like, I assume enjoy talking to me, but I, um, you know, it wasn't like, it's not a business where I'm really seen, you know, no mm-hmm. one's really seen. Right. Not only was much concern in our business about that. Had I been an accountant or someone who's like the face of the business, that'd be a big chunk of it. But mm-hmm. in our business, it didn't really matter. Um, and employer retention, our key employees were super important. And I, there's a, I can't hire anyone that works for the company for my whole um, non-compete period, mm-hmm. which I think is smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I think that, I mean, I would have put that in the deal too, but um I don't think there was huge concerns. Like we have decent turnover, just the nature of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an average employee for us lasts about nine months. Not that I don't have ones that have been with since the beginning and managers that stay around for years, but it's the average employee isn't there that long that the turnover is natural anyway. So then were they, were they asking what your systems and like, did, I don't know if you had any of that documented about like, cause I'm thinking if I would have buying that, I'd be like, okay, what's your process for finding these people? If that turnover is part of it, what are, what are the ways to keep that machine turning? And it wasn't, I mean, it's not much. I mean, the basic, it's just, you know, you're hiring people who are qualified. You know, it's like, you're not, you're not. And that's what makes me nervous about something else. Like I've never had to hire someone. We've always promoted from within. So mm-hmm. I've never like hired someone for an important position. You know, everyone's just been, and that's kind of how I tell everyone. It's like, look, you get, your pay isn't on, you don't get annual reviews and annual like wage increases you bust your ass, you're going to get rewarded. Mm-hmm. If you don't bust your ass, you're not going to get rewarded. Your wage is going to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like a, you know, I don't do it in a set way. And I think if we got bigger and we had more management, we'd have to kind of figure out a system, but I kind of like kind of being loose about it. So if someone's not working out, we can move on. Um, so it's not, in my mind, it's not a big deal because you can get trained in a week. So it's not rocket science. You're like scrubbing toilets. <laughs> That's awesome. So any other big takeaways that you had that you're happy you learned on this, on this deal and that, or anything that you think that someone that hasn't gone through a, you know, an exit like this might not be aware of? I think I learned more for purchasing than I did for selling. Just like how, like if I were to buy a business, I'm going to expect a lot of the key employees to not stay. And just by nature of how it is, it's not like, not because, and hopefully I can have a better impact on that. Like hopefully they'll like me better or like I can show what I'm going to do to fix it. Or like in my mind, I would do a value add. Like I'm not, I don't want to buy a business that's doing very well. A lot of business isn't doing well and then kind of build it up from there. But that's something that would make me nervous is like, you know, you're going to come in and people are attached to the old owner and it's not, it's just how it is. And then that scares me, especially buying something that's kind of out of your, something that would make you nervous financially would scare me a lot because mm-hmm. you're buying something that you might lose all the staff overnight and you might keep all of them. But it's like, that's a big fear of mine to start with buying a business now. Well, just, just some two cents on there. Some th- creative things that I've seen and we've done for our customers is <clears throat> the, uh, so whether you're buying or selling. So let's say, let's say if it was you selling again, so you'd say, okay, so you don't give them equity. It's called phantom stock. So it's a part, it's a, 
percentage of the business only when it sells. So they don't have any stockholder like um, rights or anything like that. So you don't have to keep them involved. But what we end up doing is you can say, okay, I'm going to give you 5% of the business when and, when and if I ever sell. And then, but what you do is you say, I'm going to give you 2% at closing and then another 1% six months later, another 1% 12 months later, another 1% 18 months later. So essentially you're locking them in, you know, it, it has to be a significant amount of money. Otherwise, you know, someone's going to walk for small, but like what ends up happening is you're, you're, you know, think about that. If you're a buyer now, you're like, okay, well, Colin's already locked in his key executives for me. And this is fantastic. And during the negotiation, what you can do is actually have the buyer pay for everything after the closing. Because usually the buyer say, like, okay, well, great, this is fantastic. You've already done this. I'll, I'll pay additional. So you're getting it with the value created because it's easier to transfer. So yeah, you're right. Because I mean, there's like people scattering afterwards. Are, it's a huge risk, but there's really cool creative ways you can structure that. So everybody, everybody's essentially winning because it's easier to transfer the business. Hmm. That's actually a really good idea. I didn't think about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Literally, you can do anything that you can creatively think of, and then you just have to have the documents drafted accordingly, right? Because so many people give, like, hey, you're gonna have you're gonna have equity, but the reality is, or first of all, don't do that. Don't give them equity if they don't need to. Like, and you haven't even worked with them yet. It's like, yeah, they've been in the business for a long time, but they could be stealing shit left and right. Like the (laughs) old owner had no idea. Right. Right. Well, as a buyer, definitely don't do that. But it's like, but what happens is as as a seller, people just randomly give cash or equity to get to that closing point, you know, because they end up talking to their employees and stuff, but it's like, no, 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 you do it, but just tie it to this, to the actual outcome that you want, which is them staying. So you can give them some, but don't give them equity, give them phantom stock and tie it to closing. And then a couple of tranches afterwards. And then, and then it's up to the, the buyer to keep them or not, but they still get paid out. And usually you're getting additional value and a, a higher purchase price. So the whole thing should pay for it. It should actually sell fund itself. Hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. And then, Oh, and I was going to say the other thing that's the other, so the other one is I feel like, so I had a two month full-time training period and my business is simple, like very simple, very like everything's like documented and figured like it's, it's very set up. And like, I feel like I didn't, I wasn't able to show a lot of stuff that I wanted to show, you know, cause you can only learn so much at a time. I can't just dump everything on you at once. I kind of got to show you like regimented of like this, I can show you this stuff. And I kept getting questions like, what do we do with this? I was like, we're going to get to that. Like I can't just like, you're not going to understand that right now. And I, I think that period needs to be longer. Um, and I think it's awesome. The new owners are, eager and they, they think that it's, and don't get me wrong, it is super easy, but I think they think it's easier than it is. And they're kind of like, yeah, whatever, we got it. And like all my stuff shut off and it's like, I am not doing anything. If you leave the admin email on and I can just see it, I'm happy to tell you things that I think would help you. Or like, if I can see what's going on, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. But I think like, and their situation might be different because they just think they got it and it's easy. And I'm sure they do have it, but it's, you know, I would want more support. You know, well, even it's, if it's, it's interesting too that in kind of on two sides of the coin there is think about if you had an earnout and there was a significant chunk tied to their success and they still turn everything off. So that this is what happens a lot is that all of a sudden there's new control and you're not controlling anything but a huge chunk of your payout comes from them succeeding. <laughs> so it's it's like, you know, some serious some serious uh, concern and stress. Yeah. And that's, you know, I just want everything to work out. So it's like, I just want to help just because that's who I am. But yeah, if I had 
a big chunk of money in it, I'd be, I'd be more stressed out than if I was just running the business. <laughs> That's a great way to, I, the, the, uh, this guy named Alex that I interviewed, um, and he, he ended up selling to GoDaddy. And like we were talking about sitting in these meetings where you have no control anymore. And you're just like, even if they're good, you know, even if the buyers are awesome people, you're just like sitting in meetings and being concerned about their success when you have no control is like horrible internal conflict. <laughs> you're super stressed out. Yeah. And that's why I think my ideal purchase is either going to be something that's not working well that you want to get the other people out and you want to fix it and grow it or like something where they're just like, they don't see bigger picture and like they're kind of stuck or somewhere where someone's retiring. They love everything they do. They just can't physically do it anymore because mm -hmm. then they want to stay and they want to mm -hmm. like, I think a big part of what I'll buy next has to do with who's selling. And that's kind of hard to tell with a broker because you kind of like you have to get through enough to find out the situation. But I think that's a big chunk of it is who are you buying from? Mm -hmm. people, I mean, I do business in a, you know, I, I do business in a, I don't know how to put it, but I'm not a dick. And a lot of people who make a lot of money make a lot of money screwing people over. And I, it's hard to tell at first what people's intentions are. So okay. it's kind of, and that's a, you know, it's a judgment call. And I think that's a really big, hard judgment call to make. What's interesting too is that it's on both sides, you know, so like there's so much of this. It's so <clears throat> interesting. Like when you think about all of the things that have to go perfect. So like you, you have to like, we have to, like, if you and I were buying and selling a company and exchanging between each other, we'd have to agree and trust each other. And then everything else has to go perfect. <laughs> it's like the, everything, like terms, conditions, the price, all that stuff, that all has to work out perfectly after we like each other. Can you imagine? I mean, going through that whole process where there's so much to be negotiated, if you hate the person across the ta table, is like it, it makes the whole thing not work. Yeah. And then to spend all that time and money on legal and your time and everything that's going on for it to not work out. And I mean, from talking to, and I'm sure you know this too, but it seems like most of the time it doesn't work out. Over 80% like, of the time. What is it? Over 80% of the time, it, the, the companies don't sell. So, oh God, there's some crazy stats. I wish I could pull them all out of my memory on, on cue, but the Essentially, I interviewed this gentleman um, who he used to run Harvard Business Review, and then now he's doing this. It's called the the Center for Middle Market, and over fifty percent of like the people that sold had no intentions of selling that year, and over like like a same amount of buyers had no intentions of buying. It all just happened through by accident, and so it shows that they're not ready. They had no idea their numbers, all this stuff. It like they like it just all this stuff kind of came together, and then but that's why so many fails because they they didn't have any of this. They didn't, they weren't ready and they didn't know what they're even asking for. <laughs> so then you end up arguing with these people and people walk away for the stupidest reasons. I, Colin, I interviewed this guy named Norm Brodsky, who is literally a badass. He was on the cover of Inc. Magazine. And so he had documented the entire potential sale of his company. That was part of his LOI. It was like, I'm going to document everything. So he, he went through the entire sale process in the column of Inc. Magazine with Bo Burlingham. And then they literally, so Norm decided to sell. And that's what it said on Inc., the Inc.'s cover. So Norm decides to sell. And he had found out like in the process that the buyer he didn't trust was like had different intentions. And this is a $110 million sale, by the way. And so he said, you have to call me at noon. And, and the guy didn't call him at noon. He called him at 1210. Norm 
pulled the, it's literally Inks magazine went out nationwide saying Norton decides to sell and he pulled the deal because <laughs> the guy didn't call him on time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So it's all, what's that? I was going to say, I have a question for you too. What, um, oh shit, I keep losing my train of thought. So when, what the fuck was I going to say? Um, Talking about oh, trust, yeah. trust in the, the deals, the buyers and sellers, or, or how many, how many deals fall apart? Yeah, what was I going to say? Sorry, never mind. Um, so when they're, when they're going to sell, what, oh, this is the question. Have you had experience in like whether you tell your staff or not? Because I was torn with that for a long time, and I don't even have a good answer for next time. Because part of me like just likes being upfront and honest, and then the other part was like, I started telling key people and they started freaking out. Oh, totally. Yep. Cause you know, what ends up happening is because what the, the things that humans do not enjoy the most is ambiguity, right? That's why people hate change. They love routine. And so you tell employees that they just, they fill their whole world with all these different assumptions. I'm going to be fired. I'm going to have to blah, 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 blah. And they just kind of go down this whole rabbit hole. I, to, to go back to your point and, this is a key sticking point for so many entrepreneurs and so many business owners. And I believe that if you do this the right way, which well, that's why our, our process is called growth and exit planning is because you tell like people are not stupid, right? I mean, when you have an owner that's 75, you're going to sell because you're like 10 years away from a hospice. Like, I mean, like you're, it's just physical nature of what's going to end up happening. So people already know this stuff or generational transfers or whatever. I believe if you take like that employee structure stuff, like I was talking about, you say, okay, here's the deal. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with this business. The goal is to grow it, build a very healthy business where everybody's got good jobs and for your key staff. So you might have your CFO, your VP of sales, your ops, the key employees, you're tying them to the eventual exit, no matter what it is, right? So whether it's a third party or an ESOP or family transit, you're saying, hey, at some point, this company is going to change hands and you're a key part of that. So we're going to tie your account plan to EBITDA and to growth and to a transition. So that way, essentially, you're got that they're buying immediately. So like, let's say an out of the blue offer happens or you think it's time or you want to start prepping 12 to 18 months ahead of time, you start chatting with them about it because they're all rolling the same direction you're not telling the people that are on the frontline troops. I mean, for us, we didn't have any of that stuff. So we had to like literally sneak around the office and I, I hate lying, right? So you just yeah. have tor- horrible like turmoil going on versus I think if you, so I guess to sum up and answer your question directly is that I believe that if you haven't done any of that stuff right off the bat, you don't tell, tell anybody and it's the most emotionally horrible thing ever. But if you've done some of these mechanisms ahead of time, then you can be open and transparent with the key people that are going to be important for the potential buyer anyways. Yeah. Cause what blew my mind too is staff who like, I might not see for six months. They're like really upset that it's selling and it's like, your job's going to stay the same. Like but they don't see- know that. And you don't know that either technically. Yeah. And I guess you're right, but it's like, so now think about this. Like, let's say if it, let's say I wanted to buy that and, you know, take a different business where it's like the VP of sales is response or the, the sales team's responsible for 75% of the new accounts. And that person goes and gets another job. I'm like, I'm not going to pay you shit for your company because of that. So, and they don't know. And the, the people are willing to go. I, th- I think people will, are willing to do drastic things for certainty. So to sit and I trust me, like my dad and I, 
It's like, we're selling, we're not selling, we're selling, we're not selling. We did that for four years. And for me, emotionally, it's just like, screw this, man. Like, I'm just, I just want some sort of clarity either way. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think people just, it's difficult to ask that of anybody, let alone your staff who are not getting paid tens, you know, six figures and the mid six figures to deal with that stress. Yeah. So it's, no, I, that makes sense. So when you do those structures, are you like, obviously they're going to stay through your sale and your transition, but as a new, as a buyer, I'd almost be a little nervous knowing they're getting a big payout because are they going to go fuck off or are they going to stay? It depends. I mean, like because now they're like now because before they had a really, they had a better deal and like the new owner sure. has to kind of give them that dealer better. So think about this. Let's say if I'm if I'm purchasing your company, you've got three executives that are making 125 grand that have got some sort of stay bonuses. So let's say, okay, they, let's say they get 100 grand at closing and then 50 grand six months in, another 50 grand six months in, or you know 12 months in. Me as the buyer, I'm going. This is awesome because those people have relation. They like the CFO knows everything about the books. The VP of sales knows all the customers. I have 12 months to bring in to either win their hearts and make sure that they love the new th- the new vision, or, or I can find them right. Or 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 if they're that stupid, or they hate me that much, they're leaving 200 grand on the table. That's a lot of money, right? So I mean, like, there's enough. I think there's enough transition like period there to, to, to have it all smooth out. And I guess you could arrange it too. Whereas you as a new buyer, if they don't stay, the buyer can get the kickback, like the 200 grand. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it, that all comes down to kind of negotiation, but um, so as we're kind of wrapping up for the listeners and then I know you and I are going to continue rallying after the, after the show. Um, but now that you've gone, you know, from purchasing the company for, I mean, that's a, quite the return on investment. I, I, I don't know the exact dollar amount that you netted, but um, you know, from 50, you know, from five grand to, you know, to your eventual sale and 43 employees, like what, is there one thing that you want to highlight that we've talked about, or maybe one thing that you want to leave the listeners with that have not gone through an exit yet and you want to leave them with something that, the, that they should take away? And uh, I guess this is true for everything I do. Everything I've learned and everything I know how to do is from me asking questions. I mean, you can already tell from talking to me that I ask a bunch of questions and it gets to be like too much sometimes. <laughs> and that's how all my conversations go. So it's like, you can never ask too many questions. You can never learn too much. Like I, whenever, when I was in business, all I would do is ask other people that do similar things. You know, I'd ask them about what they do about this or that. And I kind of had a network of people that I can bounce ideas off of who have gone through what I'm going through. And people who, People who work hard and like what they do love to talk about it. And you know, their wife is sick of hearing about it. And like, they would love to go to <laughs> anyone about anything, but it's like, you don't learn those things unless you ask. And I think people get so they're like afraid that people don't want to talk to them or like, even like in my mind, even people who are like kind of competition, like it's like, it's fun to BS about what you do and what you're trying to do. And if you don't go and find those people and ask those questions, you'll never learn it. You're going to learn so much in a day, but if someone's gone through, more than you have, you're going to pull so much more information out of them than you would like trying to figure it out yourself. Well, and I think to even put a big explanation point on that is, you know, you've got a big runway in front of you for life. And I think there's a lot of listeners here that they're going to do it once and it's going to be one of their biggest financial windfalls ever. And you don't have the chance to learn on the fly. Right. I mean, so in one of the big things, and I don't know if you notice this, but like 
a lot of a lot of people get scared to ask the questions because they feel like as the big head honcho the owner that they should know all the questions of the cpa and the legal and all this stuff it's like you should ask why because a lot of these advisors don't know what like the whole picture and they pretend and they go learn on your dime and on your experience and so you ask why until you get the answer that you think is sufficient exactly and don't just go and use the first business broker you sign up with because someone told you to use them like I would always interview multiple people and multiple stuff before you do anything. You know, it's like you meet with someone and you think they're awesome. And then you meet someone else and you're like, Oh shit, I'm so glad I didn't use the first guy. <laughs> right. and you, I mean, you never know. So it's yeah. like, I think you can never ask too many questions. You can never bug too many people. It's, it's only going to benefit you. So if our listeners want to reach out and ask you some questions or what your best questions are, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, I mean, I'm happy to talk to anyone about anything. I, um, my phone number, I can just give you my, phone number. It's 617-710-1660. And my email is Colin, C-O-L-I-N, B is in boy, E-N-G-S-T-R-O-M is in Mary at Gmail. Um, and I, like I said, I don't have anything going on. I like talking to people. Awesome, Colin. It was an absolute blast having you on the show. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Well, it's quite the story, isn't it? I mean, I can't believe he took five grand and then after three years turned it in clo- into a six hundred and some thousand dollar business. And after chatting with him off the, the record, I mean, he he really thinks that that thing is going to be continuously growing and can hit the million dollar mark within the next 24 months. And what I find interesting and I think is my takeaway for you guys is that given the fact that Colin is on the younger end of the spectrum for him to be able to grow and sell a company in that short of time frame and then have a ridiculous amount of experience to go and do it again is unbelievably valuable for Colin where he's at in his entrepreneurial journey and his career. So my two cents is for anybody that has had their business for many years and is looking to have one big windfall or to have one successful exit and is not really planning on doing it again, make sure you really understand the five growth and exit planning principles. Know why you're doing it. What are your financial targets? What are the different exit options that you've got available? What are the ways to maximize your company? And then hire the team of advisors that maximizes the entire blueprint that you just built because the stakes are just too high to just give it a shot and learn on the fly. I think that that's a heck of a, (laughs) an absolute heck of an idea for someone that's on the younger end of the spectrum that wants to keep doing this. But if you have a substantial business and there is a lot at stake, go on to GEXP Collaborative's website, start diving into the material, the ultimate guides to wrap your head around all the things that are going to matter, what you should be doing now, so that way you can engineer the outcome that you want. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Share it with people that you know. Let's get the word out on how to grow and sell companies. And if you enjoy the show, go into iTunes. Please give me a rating because it helps us spread the word, helps me get on really good guests. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you next week.